Hoosier United Methodist Podcast, Episode 15, with Reverend Darren Cushman Wood. I think our biggest problem is our inability to acknowledge that our rhetoric doesn't match our actions. And in particular, our rhetoric about mission and change really has not filtered down through the administrative structures of what we do, whether that's in a local church or in a conference or general conference level. Executive Director of Metro Ministries. Thanks for listening to Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. Welcome to the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that a strong connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to achieving the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The Hoosier United Methodist Podcast will help you and your church connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from successful pastors and people making a difference in United Methodist Churches in Indiana. And now, here's Brad. Again, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Miller. It is so great that you have joined us today for this episode, episode number 15. We're having a conversation today with Reverend Darren Cushman Wood, who is the senior pastor at the North United Methodist Church in Indianapolis, in the inner city of Indianapolis. And today we're going to delve into uh, a deep subject in the life of the church. Darren is the author of a new book called The Secret Transcript of the Council of Bishops, subtitled A Dialogue on Homosexuality and Church Unity. And that's basically the topic of our conversation today, as we will delve into what's going on at jurisdictional and at general conference. In the past, Darren has been a delegate to general conference in past years, this year, in 2016, he is a delegate to Jurisdictional Conference, so our conversation goes into a Wesleyan approach to this difficult issue that's facing the church, and how he delves into this in his book, which is a fictional account of a group of bishops who are dealing with issues that are profoundly affecting uh, the nature of the church itself. And he in our conversation, we get into some far-ranging discussions of this issue, including the the connectional table that is approaching General Conference in 2016 with a third, uh, kind of a third approach to how local churches can deal with the issue of the ordination of uh, LGBTQ folks. So a lot of interesting things that we deal with. And we also talk a little bit about the ministry at North United Methodist Church and being a reconciling uh, ministries network congregation, as well as his interest in bowling. It's an interesting conversation. I invite you to join us now as we get into the conversation, our interview with Reverend Darren Cushman Wood of the North United Methodist Church in Indiana.
Today, it is our distinct pleasure to have with us a great guest. Aaron Cushman-Wood is the pastor, the senior pastor of the Indianap- uh, in Indianapolis at the North United Methodist Church. He's also the uh, author of a, of a new book that he's going to share with us about, the, and uh, also a delegate to a jurisdictional conference where we uh, will be electing a new bishop this year. So, Darren, welcome to the Who's United Methodist podcast. Brad, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Darren, uh, you've been involved with the ministry for a number of years. I know that. But tell us just a little bit about your background, just a bit about your call to ministry and how you ended up landing right now serving the uh, inner city of Indianapolis at North United Methodist Church. Sure. I've been in ministry for over 25 years. And um, after I left seminary, uh, Union Theological Seminary in New York, came back to rural Indiana for uh, just a few years in a two-point charge. And then in 1993, I was first appointed into Indianapolis, uh, at first at East 10th Street, which is a small inner city congregation, very poor neighborhood. Then after that, uh, went into the old suburbs of Speedway. And now for the past four years, I've been at uh, North, which is a large metropolitan church in kind of the central part of Indianapolis. So all my itinerancy has been mostly in Indianapolis from one side to the other. Tell us just a little bit about what's going on right now at North United Methodist Church. What's God doing there? What are some interesting things that are happening in the life of the of the church there? Sure, there's some wonderful ministries that North is engaged in and reaching out to the community. Uh, they have a farmer's market that they're doing in the community, in which the neighborhood is known as a food desert. Uh, we also have started a summer youth employment project specifically to address the needs of young African Americans and their disconnection from our economy and our society uh, to help with that crisis that's going on in the city. Um, we are also uh, in the midst of looking at redeveloping our land so that at some point uh, we will be able to do affordable housing on that uh, site. But probably most importantly in relationship to the book, um, in um, I think it was September of 2012, the church uh, voted to become a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network. Well, go ahead and tell us the you referenced your book there. Tell us the title of your book and just a little bit about the uh, motivation for writing the book and what where that's coming from. Yeah. The, the name of the book is uh, The Secret Transcript of the Council of Bishops. It's a dialogue. Fascinating on, title, by the way. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you get a title like that so you can sell a book because it's Absolutely. much more interesting than something else. It's a dialogue on homosexuality and church unity. And uh, the book is written as if there are several fictitious bishops who represent various perspectives on that issue from across uh, the spectrum. And um, they are in conversation in a late-night Council of Bishops meeting on the eve of the denomination making a major change in its policy on homosexuality. And so the dialogue is really looking at all of those passages in Wesley's writings that have to do with church unity and separation and taking a much deeper dive into what would Wesley have said about this conversation that we're having. In Wesley, throughout his ministry, he dealt with the issue of separation and unity. Time and again, uh, the Methodist preachers raised the issue about separating from the Church of England, and so John and Charles both had to address that. And so we had this treasure trove of of insights from the Wesleys about 
the nature of the church of spiritual unity and the limits of that in terms of separation and, and schism. And so those passages, that part of our, our, of our Wesleyan corpus has not really been fully explored in terms of the issue of homosexuality. It's really fascinating that you're really uh, delving deep into Wesleyan thinking and, and theology and his writings and application to this uh, I take it's a work of fiction that in terms, but it, it, it seeks to address some of the really pertinent issues that are facing our church right now, and particularly in light of General Conference upcoming. Can you say a word about that, about uh, Wesley's influence on you in terms of writing this book? Yeah, a large portion of the book was written almost 10 years ago when I was uh, coming out of being a delegate to General Conference, in particular between Pittsburgh and uh, uh, Fort Worth. And at the same time, I was a part of a project with the Center of Theological Inquiry where we were looking as pastors and at theologians at uh, the issue of ecclesiology. And it seems like this issue of homosexuality really kind of galvanizes certain assumptions that we have about what is the nature of the church and what unites us and what are the limits to that. Um, for years, I've uh, always made it a spiritual discipline to go back and reread uh Wesley's writings as a part of my own uh, ministry. So during that period of time, I spent uh, that couple of years just going back and reading uh, everything that Wesley had to say about the nature of the church. And it seemed best to put it in the form of a dialogue as opposed to trying to come down to one side of the issue because the form of dialogue enabled me to really explore how would a variety of people use Wesley. So if you're to the far left and you're very progressive, how might you take these quotes from Wesley and rework them, and how would they challenge you? Vice versa, if you're at the far right of this issue, uh, what do you do with Wesley uh, and what he has to say about the sin of schism and, and those sorts of, of issues? So quite frankly, I'm just kind of playing it out in my own head. The, the irony of the book was I about half of when I wrote it back in 06, uh, sent it out to see if it could be published, and it was turned down. Um, one publisher in particular said that it it uh, would be detrimental to publish it. So I put it away, almost threw it away. And then last year, after the elections uh, for delegations, got it back out and circulated around, mainly as a white paper, uh, to some people who were influential in the denomination, not with the idea of having it published. But I got good feedback from them, and that's when I decided to pursue that. So it's and so here we are. It's, it's been published, and we'll certainly put some of the notes in our show notes about how to acquire acquire the book. But it's obviously that you have really uh, struggled and dealt with this issue, and certainly a, one of the purposes of general conference and even jurisdictional conference is to struggle and deal with these issues. What do you think going into general conference this year are the struggles that we deal with in this issue, uh, particularly as you've dealt with, but others as well, what are some of the issues that are going to really come to the forefront at General Conference? I know you're not actually a delegate, but you certainly are an interested person. You're involved with jurisdiction. What are some of the things we really have to deal with as a church on a general church level that have implications to us here in Indiana? Well, obviously, the third way that the connectional table is offering up is going to be the major issue that people are going to deal with the first time, here's a, a proposal that uh, probably has enough traction to um, um, possibly get passed. Um, 
that'll be a big issue. I think the issue of finances in the denomination. Before we go too far away, just in the interest of our listeners, can you just break down that third way just a little bit? Yeah. The connectional table is proposing what they call is a third way, which would give uh, local churches an option, a process uh, for deciding whether or not to offer gay marriages, uh, and for annual conferences to have the option to allow for the ordination of LGBTQ uh, persons. Um, obviously, it's uh, a very contentious idea, uh, but the mere fact that it's coming from the connectional table and there has been a number of people advocating for it um, means that it's... Uh, going to be something that uh, will be significantly debated. And that's a little bit different from years past when there's always been proposals for changing uh, the Book of Discipline, but they've never really had enough traction or momentum behind them. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So perhaps this strategy... Well, at least it's going to be dealt with. We know that. It's going to be dealt with one form or another, and so we'll see how it turns out. Yeah. What do you think are the implications of even this conversation taking place in our local churches? Well, I, if nothing changes at General Conference, I think that will still have an impact, especially upon uh, the most liberal segments of our denomination, because the discouragement, the isolation that they feel is going to push them in an even more radical direction to um, ignore the Book of Discipline. If this third way is adopted, then it's going to have a profound impact upon our churches that are more moderate and conservative uh, to really have to wrestle with, can we be a part of a denomination that allows for any kind of liberalizing on this issue? I think the impact on Indiana very specifically is going to be if it's passed. It means that all of that debate at the general conference level is now going to come down to the annual conference. And, um, you know, the annual conference session the following year and several years to come will really be taken up with that issue. Um, I think that for a number of local churches, they would still be able to uh, avoid the issue if, if they wanted to. My fear in the, in the process is because it will say then in the discipline that a church has an actual process to use in making the decision is that some churches will feel like they have to do it. Mm-hmm. They don't have to do it. But in other words, does it take the cancer that we've isolated at general conference and then it metastasizes mm-hmm. wow. throughout the whole body? That is one way of, of looking at it. That's certainly is probably the, the most pessimistic way of looking at it. Um, at the other end of the scale, does it free up the church at the local level for the first time to have some diversity of practice on this issue. So I think it'll it'll have a an, an impact either way. Sure. It seems like in one way or another, the fact that it's even being dealt with and wrestled with is going to have impact in our local churches, and local church clergy and, and leadership teams are going to have to uh, wrestle with that as well, and that there is something to be said for, for doing that, I believe. Darren... Um, You've obviously wrestled with these issues and many others. You mentioned also about you thought finances are going to be a really big issue for the church to deal with. Say a word about that. We have a long-term structural issue with our finances at a general church level, even at an annual conference level as well, and for most of our local churches. And um, even though we've talked about it for years, it seems like this 
general conference in particular uh, will have to, will be forced to make some deeper structural changes uh, even to be able to uh, ensure that there's long-term viability. Now, there's a blessing that comes with those financial problems because they force us to ask some deeper questions about ourselves, our understanding of discipleship and, and connection. Uh, but that is going to bear down, um, and, and it's a long-term structural issue, uh, not a short-term fix. We have, you've now touched on, you know, structural issues in the church. You've touched on some theological issues in the church, certainly a social issue in the church. Our mission as a church, we have said, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. What signs of hope, what signs of direction, given these struggles we have, do you see that we have to uh, accomplish this mission? Where do you see us heading? I find fascinating, if you look over the past 12 years, what General Conference has done, and the Council of Bishops in particular, is there's been an attempt to help the church refocus on that. So here's the history. If you go back to General Conference in 2004 in Pittsburgh, at that time, on the issue of homosexuality, the progressive caucuses offered up a... um, a modest compromise proposal to change some language in the social principles to say that we disagree. It's essentially the language that uh, Slaughter and Hamilton uh, are offering up now. It was defeated, and when that defeat happened, there was such a sense of discouragement among progressives in Pittsburgh that they developed a martyrdom attitude. Mm. And they cease being practical in uh, what they are offering as changes and alternatives. At Pittsburgh, at the same time, there was talk for the very first time of amicable separation. Uh, that uh, conservative caucuses began to look at that issue and have some conversation about it. It was roundly defeated in Pittsburgh. But coming out of Pittsburgh, what the Council of Bishops did is that they put together a focus on mission. And so from between Pittsburgh and then going into Fort Worth four years later, the Council of Bishops was doing a very good job and being very adamant about trying to lead the church in a mission direction around these seven vision pathways and and some other things. So, for example, um, Nothing But Nets was something that was very much promoted. What you could tell happening is out of the discouragement of Pittsburgh and out of this going to the brink of talking about schism, the Council of Bishops attempted to offer a grand vision that was mission-focused, that was discipleship-focused. Where the Council of Bishops got it wrong was they also came into Fort Worth and offered a change in the structure It was at Fort Worth where they offered up a proposal for a worldwide church. And that debate at Fort Worth got hamstrung, and ultimately that set of proposals was defeated. And I think what the Council of Bishops did wrong is that they took the focus off of mission and they put the focus on structure. And when they did that, even though they would make the argument that structure has to go along with mission, it was premature, and it got everybody bogged down in looking at structure as opposed to keeping the focus on what we can do together. So the next four years comes along, and General Conference is in in Florida. 
was a disaster as a boondoggle because there was no common mission focus or set of missional foci that the Council of Bishops was offering up, and there was no common structure that we were moving toward. And so this general conference that's coming up is really taking place in the aftermath of a pretty horrible one that had happened four years uh, earlier. So it's very difficult to kind of tell where it's going. But I do think we, we, we missed an opportunity by not following the Council of Bishops when they kind of came out with that focus. This can be what unites us, this set of, of missional directives. So where, where are we at now? You've mentioned about how we've been kind of uh, dispersed in our focus. Do we have a focus moving forward? Uh, does this mission statement that we just shared, is it uniting us or is it just a, a trite statement? Where, where are we at right now in, 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 your, in your view? The greatest temptation in the United Methodist Church right now is that we are suckers for our own rhetoric. Hmm. We are very good about creating a website, about passing a resolution, about talking the talk of church redevelopment or about risk-taking mission. But I'm afraid that we don't have the integrity to back that up. And I think our biggest problem is our inability to acknowledge that our rhetoric doesn't match our actions. And in particular, our rhetoric about Mission and change really has not filtered down through the administrative structures of what we do, whether that's in a local church or annual conference or general conference level. So I think that's one big problem. The second big problem is we've talked so much now for the past four years about separation or schism that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. People have talked themselves into a corner to assume that we have no other alternative except to divide over this issue of homosexuality. And it's, uh, it's very sad to kind of watch that being played out. I sense that you see it almost as an inevitability. Is that where you're going? I'm just, I just want to be clear where I'm hearing here. Yeah, no, 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 just the opposite. I don't think it is inevitable that we will separate, and I think there's probably too many structural things such as the trust clause uh, that will prevent an actual schism from happening. But various sides of this issue have talked themselves into a corner. So, for example, the, 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 the folks at the far left have developed a martyrdom syndrome, so they're not engaging in any kind of practical politics about what change could look like. And then the folks on the, on the far right have boxed themselves or painted themselves in this corner of assuming that um, this one issue, everything stands or falls on. Um, to be honest with you, I think the, the real change is going to come when moderate delegates to general conference take the lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the folks that have really been in the middle. And I think that for years, moderates have really had their change yanked by conservative threats about schism. And so they've wanted to back off from that. You mentioned that a word here that I think needs to be brought up, and that's lead. So it means we need extraordinary leadership in order to navigate where the church is at and where we're going. Here in Indiana, our leader is our is our bishop, Bishop Michael Corner, who's retiring after 12 years of service, which means we're also looking at new leadership 
coming on. And, of course, bishops around the church are part of that leadership process. And so we have an investment in that, and you're part of that process here in Indiana. Tell us a little bit of what you think um, Bishop Coiner's uh, legacy is for us in leadership and then how that can inform us moving forward with a new bishop. I think the great contribution that Bishop Mike has done for us has been to give permission for people to try different things. Uh, he has opened up opportunities for people to experiment, and uh, that is maybe our his best legacy that he's given to us because none of us know really the pathway forward, and it's going to try and take different attempts. Some are going to fail, and so that permission giving has been uh, has been a, a good legacy that he'll give to us. And likewise, what do you think are some of the values or some of the qualities or some of the things that we um, need to see or would like to see in an incoming bishop here to Indiana? To me, the most important thing about electing a bishop is we need a bishop that has a lot of pastoral experience. Mm -hmm. We need a bishop who has really been in the trenches in the local church, who has served uh, long term appointments, who has engaged in significant transformative ministry at the local church level, because that kind of bishop is going to bring a pastoral wisdom that will help us go much deeper than the rhetoric. Everybody is saying the right things. When you interview people as candidates, they all have the right rhetoric, but have they lived it out? And do they know and have experienced the nuances of those problems and those dilemmas? Have they experienced failure in the local church and knows what that feels like as well? We've gotten it wrong for too long because we've elected people who have a lot of experience in the bureaucracy of the mm. church. And their resume looks very good because it says they've been a DS, they've been on conference staff, or they've served on such and such a general church uh, agency or board. But right now, if we're really talking about helping the denomination refocus on revitalizing the local church, we need bishops that have a pastor's heart. In more than, and that transcends the ideological divide of left and right on this issue of homosexuality. I think that goes to wisdom, the whole wisdom piece, where we have to have someone who has the wisdom to discern where we're at and apply that wisdom to whatever pastoral situation is there. So it cannot be then pigeonholed in certain values or certain uh, uh, backgrounds or certain experiences. It has to then relate to the situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. That... um, that that pigeonholing, that trying to make appointments based upon uh, a, a one or two sentence stereotype of a pastor, whether that stereotype's positive or negative, has to give way to a deeper understanding of what that local church needs, what the capabilities, temperament are of that particular pastor. Um, I mean, I would much rather have a p- bishop who is conservative on the issue of homosexuality but has significant local church experience making my appointment than a bishop that I may agree with on a political issue but doesn't have that same amount of experience. Because at the end of the day, the stuff that happens in local churches goes far beyond 
this ideological divide that we've gotten sucked into too much. Well, ultimately, everything has to do with a personal relationship. If we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we're talking in the church, we're talking about personal relationships, one person to another, or a pastor to the people, or a bishop to the pastors as his or her parishioners, as it were. So just a couple more things, Darren. One of the things I like to ask folks, especially those of us who are seasoned veterans of ministry a little bit, you know, we live in a time of a bit of turmoil in the church, and we hear about decline in North America church, and we hear about the increase in uh, central conferences, churches, and some of those things are going on in the world. Let's just say that you're having a conversation with a, a, a pastor just being ordained this year, perhaps, or just entering the process, and they have a lifetime of ministry ahead of them, and obviously there'll be lots of changes, but what's just a word of just encouragement or advice or a word of wisdom you might give to that person? Stay Christ-centered. And by Christ-centered, I mean your ministry needs to be animated by the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you and go back to those basic spiritual disciplines that are going to constantly renew your spirit and recenter you in Christ dwelling in you. That is the most important thing you do. That's what's going to give you the longevity. That's also what's going to give you the flexibility to see what you need to do in new and different ways with each appointment. Very good. And one other thing I always like to ask our guests, Darren, just for something fun about you, something that you like to do for you to relax or to have fun or some quirky thing about you, just share a little bit about your personal life there. Sure. Um, I enjoy bowling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, one of the last appointments I was at, there was church league on Sundays and uh, did that for years. This new appointment, I've been trying to kind of get back to it. So finally got back into the bowling alley a couple of weeks ago and uh, averaged uh, 181 for the three games. So I felt like I, I hadn't, lo- hadn't lost too much. So. Not bad. And one of the things I experienced not too long ago for the first time was duck pen bowling at Fountain oh, Square. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's totally frustrating. That's, yeah. Yeah, that, was, that was wild. That was just a thing. Well, our guest today on the Who's United Methodist podcast has been Darren Cushman Wood. We do thank Reverend Darren Cushman Wood of the North United Methodist Church in Indianapolis for really uh, stepping into a great conversation that we had today, uh, dealing with a real uh, pertinent and intense dialogue regarding unity in the church and questions regarding separation and unity, especially. Uh, along the area of dealing with the dialogue on homosexuality and church unity. We, as you heard, we discussed at some length his book, The Secret Transcripts of the Council of Bishops, uh, subtitled A Dialogue on Homosexuality and Church Unity. And that book is available through uh, whipandstock.press. That's W-I-P-F-A-N-D-S-T-O-C-K.com. And we'll put some details in our show notes about how you can acquire that book. So we do thank him for our conversation today. And you can find out about his book, Darren's book, and more details at our website, which is www.hoosierunitedmethodist.com. We also really, really, really do appreciate it when you do go to our, find our podcast on iTunes. Just go into the search field on iTunes, look for Hoosier United Methodist Church, and there subscribe and rate and review the podcast. You can also check us out at facebook.com slash uh, uh, Hoosier United Methodist and uh, 
that's another place that you can be in conversation with us about it. We do thank you so much for lending us your ears on this day as we continue our series of conversations on the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast, where, as always, our mission is to strengthen the connection in United Methodist Churches in Indiana. So until next time, this is Dr. Brad Miller encouraging you to do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Thank you for listening to the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. We challenge you to be an active listener by subscribing and becoming a vital member of the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast community. Visit us on the web at HoosierUnitedMethodist.com and chat with other members at Facebook.com slash Hoosier United Methodist. Until next time, continue to make disciples and transform the world.